My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, an important and enlightening conversation with cardiologist Dr. Rishi Menon. Stay tuned. It's the end of another year, and there's so much to be grateful for. And for me, once again, I want to genuinely thank you for listening to this and sharing it with your friends and family, for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and for following on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. It's a natural time for reflection as the year ends, with reminders all around us of taking stock in ourselves, with introspections, and the opportunity for new beginnings, hope, and fresh starts. Now for many, holiday events and gatherings though, can be reminders of painful times, and even past or smoldering trauma, and maybe even how fragile their ongoing journey of recovery or healing can be. Certainly, it's very important to seek the help of trusted mental health professionals and counselors to support the vulnerability it takes to recognize our own behaviors and needs, the courage it takes to walk through therapy, and the patience it may take to rehabilitate towards an ongoing state of peace and self-harmony. But you know, sometimes those who may be suffering suddenly find themselves in a space where there are no mirrors to carefully examine themselves and no windows to see the outside world or for loved ones to check in on them. And frequently, those who are suffering may be masking and disguising and cloaking their suffering really, really well, covered by social norms, stereotypes, and our passive need to believe that it just simply couldn't happen to them. Earlier this month, I had the privilege to meet Rishi Menon and wanted to share a conversation with him about his story. Rishi was born and raised in the Midwest. He grew up in Missouri as a Cardinals fan, and like his dad, he went to medical school and trained eventually to become a cardiologist. He got married and moved to California to practice. Now, so far, the story sounds like the shiny side of a familiar penny for many in the South Asian diaspora. The next twists, though, are painfully familiar also, but not always shining brightly in the Glass Family Room showcase. Rishi soon found himself suffering from depression, isolated in the pandemic. He gorged heavily to poor health, his weight ballooning to over 300 pounds. He was soon going through a divorce, experiencing severe burnout professionally, and found himself drinking alcohol excessively. Never working drunk or ever putting patients at risk, but emotionally exhausted and contemplating suicide. Now somehow, in a life-changing and life-saving moment, Rishi enrolled himself in an inpatient rehab facility in March of 2020, and for the past two and a half years has been on an ongoing journey of self-healing, rediscovering himself, rejuvenating human connections and relationships, reviving his love for medicine through his patience and his own health through running to get back to 170 pounds, and reminding himself to embrace and accept his imperfections through a lens of grace and forgiveness. Now, Rishi is incredibly open and forthright in sharing his experiences. I was so humbled by his deep self-awareness as we talked about his story, about building strength through a community within the world of rehab and addiction, and about how he's found comfort and motivation along the way. Rishi recently wrote an essay called How I Recovered from the Shipwreck That Almost Destroyed My Life. And so when we first met, I asked him about when and how he first noticed the shipwreck. 
Well, no, thank you for asking. That's a great question. It was right around, you know, going on about two and a half years. So, you know, a little bit about what happened. I mean, when I came up here after I was married, uh, after I got married to uh, my now ex-wife, you know, we had a pretty decent marriage for, for, for a few months and we'd known each other for a while before that. But things kind of started to slowly unravel. And I didn't really appreciate that until we decided to get divorced, which is about two years into our marriage. Actually, it was on our second wedding anniversary, um, which I <laughs> didn't appreciate until uh, you know about a few days later. Sure. And even then, I still didn't realize it. So I was very unhappy, very miserable. You know, my um, the, this marriage I had entered into, this next phase of my life had really fallen apart. And even then, at that point, when we decided to get divorced, I still didn't realize it. I struggled with it for about another year or so, um, partially because there were ups and downs. Like things kind of got better. I kind of felt better. But it was really when I started to see what my relationship with alcohol was turning into and how I was starting to alienate other people in my life. And just this profound level of misery when I realized, okay, something's wrong. You know, there, I'm just not doing this right. Because I may have this continuous, continuous um, cycle of ups and downs. Sure. But it was just, you know, I kept saying, okay, I'm going to go up, but then I'm going to come back down again. Did you notice any of those signs or was, you know, substance use or, or alcohol a part of your life before you got married also? When I look back, I think that there were signs in terms of my relationship with it. Yeah. The tricky part for me is there were so many things that were going right. So how did I define what it means to be an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't under the bridge. I was maintaining a job. I never went to work yeah. drunk and, you know, get in trouble with the law. So I, I couldn't see that it was my pattern of behavior, my thinking, because I could have been an alcoholic, right? Right now, and actually, we're almost conditioned to sort of like say, "Hey, well, gosh, I'm I'm a doctor. I've gone this far. I, I couldn't be an alcoholic." Almost. Oh, to this day, when I when I share it with people, because I'm pretty open about it, they they look at me and they're like, "No, how could you? How could that be?" Right. You know, alcoholics are, are under the bridge. You know? Yeah, they're not. They're not under here. But it sounds like there were some building blocks perhaps or some things that uh, were maybe masked before your marriage and like sort of like the small signs of things going on. Exactly. Exactly. I think, you know, in in my experience with alcoholism, no one starts off like drinking alcoholically. We all kind of start off or most of us in in the community start off doing normal things like going to parties, drinking in college. But over time, things slowly manifest. And, And more than anything, it's not the quantity of alcohol that I've I realize it's, it's my relationship to the world. And alcohol is just one substance that when I use it to make myself feel better about the world, just like I could use anything, my yeah. relationship, um, my money, whatever it is. Exercise. Exercise. Yeah. Well, that's a great one. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I can relate to things alcoholically, even if that, that object isn't alcohol. Alcohol just accelerates more quickly. What was when you think back um, to both the relationships and the professional success and even your own personal successes, did you ever think of these things as sort of, or at least unknowingly as like crutches so that you could actually get from one step to the other? Or did that take a lot of time and reflection later on to really realize? It was all later on. Yeah. So I was doing it, I think, subconsciously, you know, kind of like we were talking about before, uh, I wasn't doing it intentionally. That's a big difference now is things are more intentional. So when I examined my life previously, it was very unintentional. And I do see that it was, they were crutches, they were steps. Sure. Really the question is, what, where, were these, where were these steps going, right? I never really thought about that. 
you know, for, for you, what do you think sort of builds up or props up that entire process? You know, you mentioned in your essay, the word shipwreck. And so what were maybe elements for you to understand that this shipwreck is there, that I, I have this, are there, were there turning points or even aha moments for you that allow you to now actually really discover it? Definitely. And then again, a lot of it was retrospective because I would have thought being so miserable, getting divorced, okay, this would, these would be the, the sign, right? This would herald that, okay, you, you have, you are in a position where you didn't want to be. It was kind of when I went into rehab or, you know, inpatient uh, therapy that I realized that's when I had the problem. And I didn't realize it until I started being open about it. Yeah. So when I heard other individuals um, on the inpatient side talking about it, and I, I thought, you know, these guys have the same problems I do. And I felt compelled to really share about what, what I've been holding in. And right. once I let it out and the pieces were out there in front of me, I saw that this really was a shipwreck. Do you remember when you first, and by the way, this was all hap this was all in some ways happening during the pandemic. And so, you know, this is an entire kind of change in the framework of our, our entire social structure <laughs> for this. You know, I imagine that that was just additive to the whole process. Absolutely. You know, in a, in a silver lining perspective, I'm, I'm grateful because the isolation that occurred that almost became normalized during the pandemic where we couldn't go out, we couldn't do things. You know, I, I initially, I liked that. I was like, oh, I can, I, on the weekends when I wasn't working, I can sit at home and I started to drink more and more because that's kind of one of the activities that people were doing. And I, it really opened it up for me. So the stress of the pandemic, accelerated or allowed my alcoholism to really manifest. I think if that hadn't occurred, I would have probably stayed at a low level of um, misery. It probably would have had progressive, um, you know, increase in my alcohol consumption, more destruction in my life. And this could have been a slow burn for years and years. And if I'm not mistaken, this was also in some ways had an additive effect also on your, on your physical health as well, right? Absolutely. Uh, gosh, the, the amount of um, just, processed junk food that I was eating. Um, I, you know, I like to tell people I would DoorDash twice a day, you know, we had burgers and cheesecake factory and all that stuff. Yeah. It just, it was, it was also wrapped in together, right? I just couldn't consume enough to make myself feel better. And it really got to feel like that was normal because the more I did it, the more I normalized that experience, how I felt. And then I couldn't, I really couldn't imagine being any other way, even though I, you yeah. know, cognitively knew it was bad. Just it felt normal. Do you, in thinking about that, like, do you know why that was? Like, you couldn't imagine yourself being any other way from a physical standpoint, from a mental health and hygiene standpoint, from a substance use standpoint. They're all linked, but it's so it's so challenging. I imagine for for those in that situation where you you think that you can't imagine yourself any other way, and that's such an interesting way to describe that. You know, I, I reflect on that a lot because uh, I don't even really understand even though i remember it i don't understand how it could have been that way right and i guess the opposite and this may be a, a roundabout way of answering your question but <laughs> and the only reason i say that is because you know it's almost in some ways to kind of describe what that that feeling is like right right you know i've heard people say that like you know there there sometimes are no windows around them for either anybody else to look in and in the same place that they're at, there are no mirrors inside so that they can actually examine themselves. So it's sort of like in this closed space with no windows and no mirrors. Oh my gosh, 
that's a beautiful way of describing it. Um, my ex-wife at the time, when I started to have these isolation patterns, like I would go into this room we had and I, for some reason, to numb myself, I got really into video games, which I've never really been a yeah. video game guy, but it was really passive, uh, um, pacifying thing for me. Yeah. And she used to call it going into the cave. And I was like, yeah, I'm in my cave. i got all my stuff. And right, no windows, no mirrors. There's a dark room where I could turn my TV on. And I mean, it's just the perfect imagery for that. Yeah. An yeah. unexamined life completely. You know, that's kind of a, a visual for, and I think you had also written about how you, you gained quite a bit of weight. Um, during that time. So like you're door dashing several times a day, not exercising, all these is sort of a pattern and a, an image of what your life maybe was like. I'm so curious about this one, which is when you decided to check yourself into rehab and go into the inpatient facility, do you remember how you felt on that very first day? Oh, I thank you for asking about that because that is a real vivid memory. I talk to some people about how to do this and, and what I should do. And a friend of mine who had, who is in recovery and who's actually now a counselor, and he's like, I think you should get out of California. I think you should go to this place, um, which is you know a well-known center. And it, and it was far away. He's like, I think you should get on a plane because if you go to some place in California, it's too easy, right? Yeah. And again, fortunately in COVID, I mean, travel at that time, right at the beginning of the pandemic was not easy. When I checked in, they said, um, you know, you have to have a backup plan because if you test positive for COVID, we can't let you in. You have to right. give us the hotel you're going to stay at or how are you going to get back home? But when I got there, I immediately thought I made a mistake. I was like, I don't belong here. What am I doing? My life is over. What's going to happen to my license? Can I practice? What's going to happen to my relationships? I'm, I'm about to put my life on hold where I can't communicate with anybody consistently for a month. And I was so much anxiety. I couldn't sleep that day. Um, you know, I, I was just kind of pacing around my room. We really couldn't be let off the wards. And in some ways, that was probably beneficial because I didn't really think, hey, I could go get free. It was too hard for me to leave. Be, on the day before you had actually, you know, checked into rehab and even on that first day, what was it like for you in toggling back to some of the support from your family, from your friends? Were you able to connect with them on that first day? On that first, so the... When I made the decision, it kind of came out of the blue. And, and to this day, I still don't fully understand how I came to that conclusion, that, that decision. Yeah. I think it was realizing that I was caught in that up and down cycle and sure had to change. But I had burned a lot of bridges and I didn't have a ton of support from family and friends. There's a few people that were very supportive. And actually one of the, the, the people in my life that was most supportive, uh, this is what I did on my way to rehab. I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, get drunk again. So yeah. I'm going to really, you know, go after it this time, Just, you know, drink on the plane. I'm going to try to, I, we couldn't. Yeah. And I got very drunk the night before I went into rehab. My last drink was um, a half bottle of tequila. And, you know, my last meal with that was some, you know, mini Starbursts. That's, yeah. that's how, that wasn't some glorious exit. Sure. But I ended up having a, you know, a um, drunken conversation with probably one of the few people in my life that was still supportive and, you know, burned that bridge. So I can only imagine that that first day, what was it like the second day or the third day, especially having gone through that experience and the anxiety of now being in this rehab facility where you're still alone and you still have sort of the burden of all the things on your, on your mind and in some ways the, uh, the power of addictions. Right, right. That second day, what I really remember was this, how heavy everything felt. Like I was almost shuffling. Like I was, you know, like a, almost 
what I imagine it may, may have felt like when they were walking to the um, cells, like I was shuffling, it was hard to lift my legs. You know, if I lay down, it's hard to get back up. It's still the weight of everything. What am I doing? How's my life changed? But I'll always remember there was one uh, individual who I met there on the first day, and we're still very close to this day. He grabbed me, and it was almost like we were at college. He grabbed me. He's like, let me introduce you to everybody. Let me show you this guy. And everybody kind of had nicknames. Yeah. It was a little easier. You know, he'd been there for, I believe, a week, maybe two weeks before I had, so he was more accustomed to it. And, and I think that really helped. And no one forced me. No one was like, hey, come on, we're going to go out and do all these things. It was just a very open environment. People were, were I wasn't looking anybody in the eyes, but other people were. I felt welcomed. And then I started to hear other people's stories. And that's really what helped me was hearing how somebody else, you know, was talking about alcohol and not just that, but how they destroyed their life. And, you know, this is a room full of men, right? Mostly Midwestern men, which we're not really good at talking about what we feel and, and who we are, but I heard it. And I heard my story and I heard people talking about, you know, feeling like they weren't good enough. Like they, they had to keep trying. They were failing as husbands that they couldn't make enough money. They didn't do their job. Well, they were letting everybody down. And once I heard that, I really could start to open up. And that was day three. I, I told my story on day three. Mm-hmm. One thing that happens uh, in inpatient treatment is at some point they ask you to tell your story and you work with your counselor, you write out the things that you want to say. When I heard other people sharing, I was like, I got to do this. And so I shared on my third day, most people, or people at least at that time, were waiting, you know, four, fifth, uh, sometimes even two weeks. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's rejoin our conversation with Dr. Rishi Menon. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, my name is Richa Morjani, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Dr. Rishi Menon. You know, for someone who's grown up in the Midwest and lived in California and has uh, Indian and and South Asian, you know, roots and a backdrop, what are some of the clear misconceptions or misperceptions about rehab that that you were able to now, for lack of a better word, diagnose? (laughs) (laughs) Well... And I think people, if you say this to them, they're going to say, oh, no, that's not true. But the idea that going to rehab means you're a failure, you know, like, oh, man, I need to go to rehab. Or, oh, you're such a drunk, you need to rehab. You know, we tossed around very colloquially, and colloquially, and I, I don't necessarily, you know, take offense to that. Yeah. But it was such a barrier because I couldn't think about it, about what it really was, a transformative experience. One really important lesson for me about rehab <clears throat> is it's not the cure. One thing I, I really got, but the main thing I got from that inpatient treatment, that rehab stay, was this willingness. This willingness to say, maybe I don't know myself. Maybe I am an alcoholic. Maybe I can listen to what other people are going to say. And I'm, that's what I'm most grateful for. Because when I left that program, they essentially said, this is all great. I mean, who wouldn't like rehab, right? I love joking about that. You take 30 days off. There's no cell phone. You get to talk about yourself for, for you know, a month. People yeah. get to help you. You don't have to worry about anything. It's pretty nice. It is pretty nice. But it's, it's not quite the retreat that you're, that you're thinking of, right? <laughs> right? Not quite the same, right. It sounds like the sense of community that you felt that first couple of days 
um, was a surprise. I mean, were, were you surprised by that and some, some other things in, in innovation rehab? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the, the individuals I was connecting with, I mean, some people had, um, you know, they, they had done kind of hard time in jail and prison. Yeah. Other people were physicians, other people were lawyers. Um, some people were like oil field workers, you know, there's just this huge spectrum of individuals. And I felt connected to them because we weren't talking about who we were outside. We were talking about the things we had done professionally. We were talking about who we were. Yeah. And that was, there was such an instant connection with that. Were, were there um, women there also, or is this is all men? All men on our ward. Okay. Um, so they had separate wards, separate units. I see. Okay. And normally um, for group lectures, we would all kind of convene and, and meet up. But because it was COVID, we did everything in our uh, units together, which again was really beneficial. Yeah. I think. That's probably the way it should be. This is more of a naive question, but do you still um, have connections and, and keep in touch with either folks who you met there or people who were counselors or people who were coaches? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's. I was just talking with a friend of mine yesterday. Um, we we're talking about recovery, and you know, this is two years later. There's a couple of folks I keep in touch with probably daily, if not you know, multiple times a week. Yeah, uh, it's sort of like the life rafts. They're constant, sort of like there to kind of prop you up and build you up, and, and I'm imagining you do the same thing, you know, for them as well. Does that did that sense of camaraderie, especially the kind that you felt at those first couple of days, um, it, has that been sort of a not a secret, but like a real important passport to success, longitudinally at least? Absolutely, it's the it's the central feature. There's a, um, a common phrase in, in the recovery world. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And so and another thing we talk about is staying in the group, right? So the idea there is that we're staying around people who understand us, people who I can be really vulnerable, uh, open and vulnerable around. Yeah. Uh, that's not always the case with my family or my colleagues. You know, I try to be open with everybody, but there's a deep level uh, of openness that I maintain with people in the recovery community. That I can say the weird things that I'm thinking or feeling, right? You know, yeah. the crazy thoughts that it's I a have. shared trauma experience. It's right? a shared trauma, and I get it out so it doesn't fester in my mind. Um, so that's I, I'd say if there's one thing that characterizes recovery, it's community more than anything. We, uh, as physicians particularly, um, you know, we have been programmatically and structurally educated. What do you think perhaps builds up or props up the mentality of this notion for physicians to be warriors or superheroes <laughs> or, um, you know, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? I mean, in, in the residency world, I still always remember when the duty hours thing first came out, there are always grumblings about that, right? About like, oh my God, we had to do this this way. So, I mean, in that whole notion of being propped up as a superhero or a warrior, how do you reflect on that part? But then also, you know, is there a generational aspect to that as well? Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked this question because as I reflect on it, you know, this journey is largely about what, um, what has happened to me, but, but who I am and how I change, right? And I think about the external world to an extent because I realize I have to focus most of my attention on myself. But I think I, I contemplate or I reflect on how did I get to this point, this idea of being a superhero. And, and I often think about it as wearing a mask. Yeah. And, and you know, in training and residency, right, we learn you, something devastating can happen with the patient. And we've got to, you know, compose ourselves and then go take care of the next person. Right. And I think that's where the mask comes in. That's a good tool when we're taking care of people. 
right, to go from one person to another so that we can deliver a level of service um, that the patient deserves, that the person deserves. We want to be there for them. And that's a skill that I think may not be innate to people. For me, it's not. I have to develop it. Sure. But as I developed that skill and I spent a lot of time using that, I, that skill of wearing the mask, I used it in my personal life. And that's where that crossover really was, was detrimental to me. Because I got so good at wearing that mask um, around people, around patients, that I wore it around my colleagues. I wore it around my wife. I wore it around my family. Because the ability to create who I am or this idea of who I am got away from me, right? It didn't really matter who I was. I, I wasn't in touch with what was going on with me, both good and bad. I, I knew who this persona was. I had a lot of energy went into that. Even becoming a doctor, right? The persona of becoming, like, what does that mean? Who am I? Uh, even though I also had imposter syndrome and I hate myself, you know? So there's that, there's right. that delicate balance. But, but the fact that you can actually express that, right? That there's this, this balance, there's this, you know, notion of um, imposter syndrome or like, who, who am I really? I'm, I'm also curious about two things. Number one, do you think being an Indian American at all um, accelerates some of that? I think it's hard to say no to that. I think that there's a cultural um, idea about how we how we define success, and you know I don't think there's any um, ill intention there. I think it's just been hard to think about success in a, I guess, a non-traditional way. That's emerging now. Yeah, and especially for immigrant culture, right? I mean, like you know, so, so driven for both survival and success at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea for most of our parents coming over here was to give us a better life. And a large part of that means opportunity and taking advantage of those opportunities. How'd your, I mean, sort of separate but related question, how'd your family, you know, overall kind of react to your, in some ways, clairvoyance for yourself? And even like the idea of being able to say, hey, I need to go and um, really fix this and, and, you know, get into rehab. They were supportive. I think it came out of the blue. you know, in full honesty, my older sister had mentioned it to me before, you know, and that year after my uh, divorce or, or during that divorce, uh, that year I was getting divorced, you know, I would call her drunk and I would, it's not easy to be around. And the message I kept hearing was, you need to go get help. You know, you have a problem with No, no, it's, you would too if, if, if you had this situation and all this. Um, so I had no insight. And then when I got insight and I said, I just need to do this, there was support. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you need to do this, we support you. Yeah. And then over time, it was not only do we just support you, but we like that you're doing this. We're happy that you do this. The relationship I have with my uh, parents now, which, you know, there's been ups and downs. There's sure. been some strain, sure. um, but they're very loving, you know, immigrant Indian parents. But my mom told me one time, I, I can't believe I have this relationship with you now. It's the relationship I've always wanted. It's founded on honesty. Mm-hmm. I don't have to hide from them. I don't have to feel like I need to make them proud. Sure. You know, they really always were. They have kind of a different way of showing it, perhaps. Sure. But <laughs> they're just, you know, like I can call my folks now and say, hey, I'm having a hard day with something. Yeah. And they don't necessarily have to give me advice. They just are happy to know that I'm having a hard day and something somehow it'll get figured out. But I'm not losing my mind over it. I don't have to drink it. Do you think that younger generations, and in this case, sort of younger generations of physicians, the, the folks who are really um, entering the profession now, even entering professional life, right? Um, becoming adults now. Do you think that their mentality is um, slightly different in the sense that they're perhaps more self-aware of this? They're perhaps more, they have more licensure to 
um, be accepting of their personal flaws and, and in fact, in some ways call that out so that institutions and structures can, you know, take that into account. Again, this whole idea of like, you know, well, I never had to deal with that in my <laughs> residency days, but, you know, you guys have it all soft now. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think there's some real importance to that, especially for, for younger trainees and for younger, um, you know, folks entering any profession for that matter? I, uh, I agree with you 100%. I think that that's a much, uh, that's much more remarkable or notable feature of the modern, um, I don't want to just say professional, I mean, everybody entering the workforce. Right. It's different for us because we didn't talk about that, but being on this side, being able to share, being able to reflect and really dig to the root of what's going on is a tool. It, I think it will make people better. It'll make them happier, or I'll, I'll speak for myself. It's made me happier, and I think it's made me better my profession uh, or anything that I do. So I, I welcome this um, shift. I think it is a little harder generationally because yeah. that, well, I did it this way. And, and that's going to be with everybody, right? Right. This that's generation said it. Yeah, right. As long as there's humans, you know? Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, it's so hard to transpose a blanket view, right? Or a one-size-fits-all uh, solution to this. But, you know, for you, how did you in some ways kind of define your own personal journey with at all professional burnout did you find there was some merging to that did you find now at least like the solutions that you built for yourself are really good armor to you know sort of prevent professional burnout absolutely i think you, burnout was is part of my story for sure and i'm, I'm open with that as well yeah. having been through that you know again never blame the the circumstances i'll Burnout is an interaction between a system or an environment and an individual. I can't change the system. You know, I can, we can advocate or I can advocate for it, but, but it's a massive entity. Um, a lot of, you know, and the term is resilience. I don't know if I love that term, but that's the idea. Sure. How do I increase my resilience to avoid or, or mitigate burnout? Or, or rather, I almost look at it as like health and disease. Like burnout is disease, right? Burnout is heart failure. Yeah. And health is exercise and nutrition and sleep and all those things so that I don't develop or progress into a state of disease. Sure. So when burnout occurs, man, like I had to take, I had to do a retreat or I had to go to rehab, whatever it is. There's no well-being at that point. Well-being is what prevents burnout. Sure. But I know that I have to balance that in my life. And because I've seen burnout, I want to stay very far away from it. So I give myself permission, kind of like we had talked about a little bit, like if I need to take time off, I need to you know, say maybe, heaven forbid, make less money or, or have a different schedule. I sure. won't do that because yeah. I need to have days that are meaningful. I can't, I can no longer participate in the, I'm going to do this for 10 years so that at 10 years I can go do what I want. Mm -hmm. My days have to be as complete as they can be. And they're not always, call days are hard or sure. just weeks that are, are rough. But in general, I try to focus on that day. When you find yourself veering towards the days where there is more, emotional exhaustion, there is more compassion fatigue, there's more kind of, you know, depersonalization and, you know, all the, I think, ingredients of, of physician burnout. What do you do to kind of either self-correct or how do you kind of like fill the well or like refill or replenish um, in that way? And I mean, you know, different institutions, different people have a million different solutions for this <laughs> and some of them are helpful, some of them not so helpful, but, you know, how do you, in some ways, kind of like put the stop gaps on futility for this? Oh, God, that's a great question. For me, there, I, I, I'm starting to understand myself better. 
there. So I know what those elements um, are that fill my cup. For me, it's connection and exercise and being on the side. It's all, for me, it's always simple, right? It may be that I need to prioritize sleep. So I try to be you know, proactive in terms of realizing I've got a call stretch coming up. I've got a lot of meetings this week. So I'm gonna ramp down a little bit. I'm gonna not take as many social obligations. It's important to me that I get to bed at a certain time in the weeks preceding and the weeks afterwards. Cause I know that during those weeks, it's gonna be yeah, rough. So I need to fill my cup up, almost overflow it so I can be ready. And then, you know, I was, I was talking with a nurse in the ICU uh, about this and she had a wonderful statement, which I used to really, it discharacterized my life. I think I read about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why do we have to empty our cups before we fill them up, yeah. right? And, and so when, when she said that, it clicked with me, right? I gotta do little things. So if I have to uh, you know, schedule an hour less per day, or if I have to start a little bit later so I can do the things I need to do, I'm much more effective and that burnout is, a lot farther away. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's rejoin our conversation with Dr. Rishi Menon. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tam France, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Dr. Rishi Menon. Did you ever lose trust in yourself? Absolutely. And, and how did you come to that realization, and how have you been able to, in some ways, strengthen that? In some ways, and this is a little bit of a weird answer to your question. In yeah. some ways, I still don't trust myself, but it's actually liberating. Because what I realized in, in my journey, especially with alcoholism, is that I don't necessarily think about myself the right way. I may, in, in my most severe form, not actually be able to assess myself. It's a blind spot for me. The beauty of that is that I then can get immersed, uh, or I can surround myself with people who can see things, who can see see my blind spots, who can say, hey, Rishi, you're, you're a little bit more irritable, you know, and, and it's not judgmental. Yeah. So the beauty of getting to that experience of not trusting myself is liberating because I realized that it's made something that I may not, never be able to do, particularly, you know, with imposter syndrome, I have some body dysmorphia issues that I deal with. Sure. So I have to realize that, as my buddy calls it, his thinker, he's like, he's like, you got a broken thinker, man. You yeah. know, I got a broken thinker. So yeah. accepting that and realizing that then helps me turn to other sources to get that information and to, in many ways, trust um, the world, trust people yeah. around me to give me an accurate representation of that. Because if I struggle with it, I will likely get wrong ideas about that. So I have a harder time trusting myself about certain things. And, you know, I imagine that particularly in the, in the professional practice that you're in, there is a lot of basis for, for trust. And, I'm curious for you how you've been able to, in some ways, balance what you just mentioned, which is kind of constantly have the acceptance that there are others around you who are going to call out or sort of when you're having a bad day or, or you know, ensure that it's sort of like there are safeguards, you know, for your behaviors in some ways. How do you also balance that with maintaining your sense of confidence and self-esteem <laughs> and really making sure that, that you're proud of, of your behaviors and activities? 
Oh, that's a great question. And I still struggle with that. I still, you know, if somebody says something good or I get good feedback, oh, you're just being nice to me, right? That's still a, a, hard, um, a hard thing to deal with. But I'm much more open now to, to look at the evidence, right? Like, you know, after being a cardiologist for almost eight years now, you know, in general, people have been pretty satisfied with what I do. When, when I discuss cases, complicated cases with colleagues who I hold in high esteem and I have similar opinions to them, I'm like, okay, you know, I... I'm, I think I'm starting to get it. So I can listen to myself more. And um, I have, I've always felt pretty comfortable in the clinical environment. I've always, there's lots of self-doubt. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure, or I suspect you've had this too when you're driving home thinking about that case and should I have done this? And as soon as I get home, I'm going to call. Oh, that's, oh my God. <laughs> you know, you want to yeah. pull over and look on oh, it. Oh, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. It is not, not a fun um, thing to do. And, and yet, I think in, in various different ways, we, we all have reminders of, you know, that idea that, look, there are good safeguards around us, that we practice in a safe environment, hopefully. And on top of that, reminders that of our, human, <clears throat> of our humanity in, in that we, we are going to make errors. We are going to actually like have uh, not so great days of physicianship. Um, and we, we try and do our best to make sure that or at least our effort is high, our, our aims and values are, are staying true, that the compass is is still the same. Our North Star is, is hopefully not veering too far. You know, stuff like that, I, I think at least. You know. Oh, you nailed it. That that our values are still there, that I'm still aligned with my values. That was the hardest part for me in burnout is that I had this vague idea of what my values were on paper, but was yeah. I living them? Was I making decisions based on them? No, I didn't have the energy or resources to. So I could, I could function, I could provide the clinical information, I could ensure safety for my patients. But not for very long, right? Yeah. That was clearly going to be not. Or perhaps for yourself. Oh yeah, definitely for myself. I did not. You know, I, I would have burned myself. I would have burned myself to a crisp. Tell me a little bit about kind of the feelings that you had prior to your rehabilitation experience and now post rehabilitation experience um, about therapy and mental health and hygiene. Um, do you still receive therapy? Do you um, do you actively you know seek out counseling and how does that compare or contrast to how you felt perhaps about therapy prior to that rehab uh, sort of inpatient experience? Oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. So I still see counselors uh, for various things in my life, you know, not just for the, the alcoholism part, but, you know, here's an example. A couple of weeks ago, I noticed I was getting a little bit more irritable. It was that I just didn't have a lot of reserve. One more thing. And I'm going to, you know, let tell you how I really feel. Right. Kind of thing. right. <laughs> and I, I had that awareness to say, you know, okay, that's not me that's not something that's not aligned with my values like i don't yeah. want to be that that way and i went through the normal thing am i sleeping uh enough do i have a medical issue that's affecting my concentration these are things that i wasn't good at assessing so i got medical evaluation i'm going to get checked for sleep apnea just to make sure because there could be yeah. some baseline issue and then I, was, I continued to struggle and i said okay i need to talk to somebody about utilizing the resources that were available to me i found it really easy and i'm very open to it you know it, I had a lot of biases, like, oh, I'm, I'm weak, I'm, I'm a failure, you know, I'm going to embarrass people, and like, the secretive, yeah, um, oh, no, no, I'm not going to there, I'm going to a baseball game, you know, I'm going to go hang out with my boys, you know, something like, something manly and strong, like, sure, no, I'm, it's almost like, who doesn't need therapy? Yeah, this yeah, and I think it's very strong, and, and kind of going back to that generational issue, I'm open with um, our younger daughters about it, and they're very comfortable with it, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I mean, 
in, in many ways. I, I think about that a lot, especially from the Indian American or the South Asian American experience where, you know, there's not a whole lot of openness to say, absolutely, you know, therapy should be part of, you know, everyone's lives and in some, fit, you know, way, shape or form, but being able to sort of like, not just accept it, but embrace it. I, I'm curious about one thing you're, you know, I'm listening to this and I feel such almost a great sense of empowerment for you. Like, I feel like, like you mentioned the word liberated so many times and, <laughs> and this idea that like you've kind of reclaimed who you are in some ways. You know, as a cardiologist, you've lived through this kind of emotional period in your life that, you know, saw a lot of mental health um, challenges, but being able to sort of like rejuvenate and take away the suffering of your, of your health. How do you think your own story has motivated your peers, your patients, your um, colleagues? Uh, you know, do you have a sense of how much uh, power that has. I mean, I'm listening to this and I feel great and motivated, you know, by it. But so I'm, I'm just curious maybe what some of your reflections have been on how this may be changing the needle for others. That has been one of the most unexpected and beautiful aspects of, of my recovery and this journey. Because what I share with patients, and then a lot of them knew me before, you know, I was about 300 pounds at that time. Um, and they were all very kind. I mean, a, a few people had made some comments. I was very mindful because I read data about uh, physicians who carry extra weight are less likely to counsel about the benefits of um, healthy lifestyle. So I was very cognizant of that, and I, I sure. tried to talk to people about it. But when I came back, and, you know, during COVID, a lot of people hadn't seen me, they wanted, they had a lot of questions. Yeah. And the beauty of it was, I think a lot of people wanted some, what's the berry in the Amazon, right? You know, I love saying that, that that's, just, that's my like go-to. People want this quick fix. And what I get to share with them was that all of this like health, all these issues that I, I suffer from really related to mental health. It was stress. Like, I, you know, and I'll say this probably anytime anybody asks, but I love donuts and I love donuts more when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. I'm not stressed. I'm mindful eating. I enjoy it. But if I'm on call, if I'm upset, if I'm worried about a relationship or what somebody thinks about me or I'm in my head, it, it'll be donut after donut. So my nutritional consumption is affected by my mood. So I realized that, you know, I couldn't really just do a, a diet. I couldn't really just, you know, I mean, I could, I'd lose weight if, if I want to look at for a wedding, yeah. but it was, a, it was a mental health issue. So I, I often will explore that with my patients now. Mm -hmm. What are the barriers? Because it's not really a deficiency of knowledge anymore. Everybody knows about vegetables and processed foods. It's, yeah. What is the barrier? Is it because I'm working too much and I can't give myself permission to work less? Is it because I never got over the loss of something? Yeah. Right. Those types of things. And it's a much more open conversation with, yeah. with patients. And I think that they appreciate that. I think that's what they're really wanting to tell us. Yeah. I'm not sure your peers or your colleagues, um, even like those who have heard your story have you know, heard your, um, ability to, in, in some ways, you know, share this. Yeah, yeah, people will, you know, come to me with different aspects. You know, um, sometimes people will kind of timidly, you know, want to talk about substance use, and I'm very open, and I'll yeah. never, you know, it's not something anybody else can diagnose from. Yeah, it's a self-diagnosis. So I just, I'll share with them about my experience. Sometimes people have asked me about health and nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, I just share with them. Yeah, but I think the coolest aspect of it is people are just asking questions, and they're they're getting to the idea that maybe I can change because one mm -hmm. the biggest fallacy that I've experienced is that as an adult I can't change 
And maybe that's because of the recovery community that I'm in, but all I see is change. Every time I go and talk to people, it's like, wow, you know, you were really in a bad spot. I myself, you know, I, I was at a point where I had planned to kill myself and now I can't even imagine that. And that divide, you know, really convinces me that we can change a lot more than we think. And that's, that is just not something I believed three years ago, man. You know, you know, in, in that same spirit of the finality of that sentiment, having, you know, such an amazing amount of depression to, you know, be suicidal to a sort of vibrancy of life for you has that kind of swing of the needle. How has that made you perhaps think about optimism or think about change and think about the unknown of, of the future in some ways? Uh, does it strengthen you? Does it make your imposter syndrome in some ways <laughs> lessen? Um, I'm just so curious about like how, how, what has it done for maybe your outlook? Oh, it, it's changed it completely. The biggest, or I keep saying the biggest, I'm using all these adjectives. Something that's, that I've noticed a lot about myself is I, I really relinquished expectations, right? Like I, I know that I, I'm supposed to try and I'm going to try my hardest, but if it doesn't turn out the way I, I, it has to turn out, I'm okay with that. Before, it, if it didn't turn out the way it had to turn out, everything was, you know, I wasted my time. I'm a failure. It'll never be good. Why try? All those things, all those narratives, you know, now it's like, okay, I get up and I know I'm supposed to try. That's all I'm responsible for. The outcome is always in my hands, you know. Um, sometimes it's, I can influence it slightly more than other times, but it's being able to let go of that, that helps me deal with the future. Well, uh, Rishi, it's so inspiring and I'm so grateful that you were able to share that with all of us. Not only just your, your service as a physician, but your, your compassion for patients around you, for your colleagues, and most importantly for yourself. Um, it's really quite inspiring and, and glowing. So um, thanks so much for coming on with us. It was really a treat. Oh, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thank you for all the work you're doing and, and talking to people. This is amazing work. Thanks so much, Rishi, for sharing and opening yourself with such vulnerability to light the way for others through your ongoing story. If you're worried or you're worried about someone close to you, safe and anonymous addiction resources can be found at aa.org and al-anon.org. And please call or text 988 in the U.S. or go to befrienders.org globally if you or someone you know needs suicide or crisis services. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnika.